Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Right. Well, hello and welcome everybody to the Jude 3 Project. Uh, my name is Dr. Vince Bantu and I'm a guest host on uh, our podcast today. And uh, I am here today and I'm going to be joined with a friend and colleague of mine. And we're going to be talking about a new book that we've uh, written together entitled Gospel Hymenote, A Constructive Theology and Critical Reflection on African and Diasporic Christianity. So uh, this is a new book that we are very excited to offer to all of you. Uh, we're excited to be working with the Jew 3 Project because we know that the vision and mission of the Jew 3 Project is to equip the body of Christ and especially in the black community and the black church with apologetic and evangelistic and theological resources. And that's exactly what this book uh, is. And uh, what, what it is, is it is actually an edited volume uh, written by a team of African-American and, uh, and black scholars uh, of various theological disciplines. And what we have done is, is has attempted to provide to the church theological categories that emerge uniquely from the black experience and from the black perspective and from Afrocentric concepts that hold equally strong to the values of the truth of the gospel, as well as the value of liberative justice for the oppressed. And, and part of the motivation that gave rise to this is uh, seeing a lack of holistic theology uh, or a what we call a gospelist theology or a hymenote. Uh, and again, that's part of the Afrocentric piece is that hymenote is an ancient African concept and term equivalent to the Greek term theos and logos, uh, hymenote meaning theology, doctrine, way of life. And, and there's a need in the academy and especially from the black perspective, which is really been given witness in the black church of a holistic hymenote or a, and this is what we mean when we say a gospelist hymenote uh, that that is equally concerned with matters of truth and biblical orthodoxy as well as justice and liberation and the flourishing especially of and taking into account god's heart and and priority for the marginalized and the oppressed and uh, and so in that way there's 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 graceful uh critique and conversation with dominant evangelical or also in the academy that in the in the black perspective, the dominant liberationist or womanist perspectives. And this is what we are offering entitling it gospelist perspective that really emerges from the black church. Um, but unfortunately that perspective hasn't been given as much uh, voice in the academy, uh, which is predominantly white. And so we as African-American scholars who still hold to that holistic tradition of the black church are coming into uh, this book, giving theological and academic framing to the lived theology of the black church. Uh, uh, that's been around for several hundred years. And again, it's an edited volume. So we come at it from various perspectives. Uh, myself as a patristic scholar, you know, I, I was able to write the uh, intro and conclusion and also throw a chapter in there from my uh, kind of perspective as a patristics or early Christian scholar. Uh, and we, we've already uh, had interviews even with some of the other authors coming at it from practical theology, uh, some from his history, some from biblical studies. Uh, but today we are going to be uh, joined and we're going to uh, hear about one of the chapters in this book, Gospel Hymenode, from our resident uh, theologian, uh, public theologian and systematic theologian, Dr. Vincent Baycote. And so uh, at this time, it is my esteemed privilege to introduce to you all Dr. Vincent Baycote, who is going to be joining us now. And we're going to have a conversation uh, about his particular chapter uh, in this book. And um, and so uh, it is a great pleasure uh, for me to introduce you all, Dr. Vincent Baycote. Welcome, Dr. Baycote, this afternoon. Good to be with you. Yes, yes, you too. You too. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Dr. Baycote, I, I wonder if... Uh, 
you know, you might be able to just kind of start off by introducing and telling the audience a little bit about yourself. And I, I would like to maybe even begin that by saying that this is a it's a special treat for me to be able to have written this book with you and now to be having this interview with you, because uh, some of some folks might not, not know. But I got my start in theology as an undergraduate student at Wheaton College, where Dr. Baycoat is a professor and was actually my advisor uh, many moons ago. Uh, we won't say how many moons, uh, but but a little while back. Uh, so this is a great honor to see the Lord bringing us full circle. Uh, you being my professor, now us uh, being colleagues writing together. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, and it's great to see how the Lord has um, really raised you up and brought your gifts to the fore and how you're using them. It's also great to see not just your academic gifts, but I would call them your leadership and vision gifts and your entrepreneurial gifts, how those have um, really been very catalytic and not just a catalyst, but they've actually built things, which is why we, we have the book. So I'm, I'm really just great. I mean, I guess I say, I'm proud of you. Uh, yeah. It's it's kind of, you know, as the older guy, I guess. Right. But but no, it's, it's great. Uh, so I've been here. I'm in year 20 at Wheaton. In fact, this this month ends year 20 because I started in January of 2000. Wow. So I'm an actual calendar year. Um, my my oldest daughter was born in August, and starting uh, my career at Wheaton College with a one month old would have been a disaster. So they let me start in the middle of the year. <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, yeah, so year 20. Um, since 2007, I've been the director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton, and um, so I teach theology and direct the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. Um, you know, you mentioned public theology. That's probably a good way to describe sort of my way of doing it. To me, talking about doctrine is very important. And it's also important to talk about, uh, you know, a lived theology. When you mentioned hymenote, uh, I think you know, it's really important to point out that the idea with, of, of hymenote the, the, or the, the meaning of it, uh, is about, if you will, a, a theology that's not just what is confessed, but what is also conveyed in practice. And mm. so, so I think it's really important to, to emphasize that. And for me, that that's always kind of been uh, really important. The fact that theology and ethics should not be, uh, you know, uh, in two different zip codes, shall we say. They're in the same zip code as far as I'm concerned, because what is mm -hmm. what is believed is not just to be stated. But, it, but Jesus said, follow me, not just talk about me. So mm -hmm. I, I think the best way to describe my approach to things is to say, I've always been inclined to, to, to sort of live at that intersection. I mean, it's fine that there are people who mainly talk about ethics and mainly talk about systematics, but I've always been sort of at the intersection. So I guess absolutely be a public relations person for Christian doctrine. And I like to do that. But part of my reason for being a public relations person is to say, um, this is not just about what we say, it's about what we do. Mm. Uh, it's about the, the, the lived realities of our theology. So that, that's why, to me, you can't have a separation between theology and ethics. It, to me, it's always been together. So that, that's really been very important to me. Great um, mm. part of this book, uh, you may know, Vince, I had another book come out last week with. Mm called um, Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News in Search of a Better Evangelical Theology. Wow. Uh, if you have a library, you can get the book more cheaply because Braille books aren't cheap. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is definitely expensive. Um, mm -hmm. if, you want, if you want to buy one book for the price of four, then there's your book. Um, <laughs> Do you have a copy with you? Can you show it, hold it up? Uh, I don't because literally it was just released last week and they are sending me my copies uh, and Brill's in the Netherlands. So oh. it, it hasn't yet arrived. But if you go, if you look up Vincent Baycoat and Brill, B-R-I-L-L, you will see uh, the page for that. Um, oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So um, it's, it, yeah, to me, to me, it's always about that, that interface about um, believing deeply and trying to live deeply as well. 
Yeah, that's great. That's well, that that really leads well into talking about a little bit more about this chapter that that you've written for the book. And, uh, you know, we um, just as a, you know, kind of a, a, a little a preview or a roadmap for the readers, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I, there's an intro and a conclusion. But then in between, we have various chapters. Uh, we have a couple of Old Testament, one New Testament. Uh, we have a patristics chapter. We have a modern history chapter, early modern and then, um, and then the final chapter uh, is from a pastoral counseling and practical theology section. But before that, the sixth chapter is the one that, that you've written, Dr. Baycoat, and it's entitled Home Cooking, Evangelical Theology That Includes Us, uh, is, the is the title of the sixth chapter that Dr. Baycoat has written. And it is, uh, it is powerful. It's a great chapter. It's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about it, uh, but it's, I, I just, one thing I love about it is how, uh, how holistic it is, as you mentioned, you know, hymenode uh, is a, is an East African concept that that goes back to the beginning of the church, and it and it speaks to the reality of the inseparability of of ethics and and doctrine and confession and and lifestyle. Um, and and so I, I love how your chapter, even in terms of the genre, li you know, lives that out in that it's theology and ethics, but it's also it's biography. Uh, you know, it's it's your own story. Um, and so I, you know, I don't want to give too much away at the outset, but you mentioned uh, even in the chapter at the beginning, uh, you mentioned the, the idea of being a public relations uh, you know, kind of person for theology and, uh, and for doctrine and, and things like that. Um, but I wonder, you know, even at the outset, if you could just give the readers a little bit of a general sense of like what the chapter's about, um, you know, kind of what motivated you to write it. Uh, yeah. And, and, and kind of um, what your what your like, yeah, what your hopes are for that chapter sure. in this volume uh, and also just more broadly. Sure. Um, I, the, I would say the aim of it is how we talk about um, dealing with our faith and dealing with the fact that, uh, to put it this way, um, you know, if you're part of a family, uh, chances are there can be complications in your family. And how do you deal with the complications in your family? Um, you know, we're in a time where people talk a lot about cancel culture. Well, the Christian faith isn't really about uh, cancel culture 101, right? It's about living with difficult people 101. And uh, a lot of the chapter is negotiating how to deal with um, a faith community where there's a lot that resonates with you, but you also have to contend with things that disappoint you and sometimes create distress for you. And how do you negotiate all of that? And I think it's important to think about that because the easier thing to do is just cancel somebody, to do what I call zero-sum thinking. I'm not, I'm not the only person who calls it that, but it's, it's easy to just say, hey, we love these people, we read everything that they say, don't read those people, they're the devil. When mm -hmm. the fact is, is that, um, and I've put this elsewhere, but you know, no Christian who's going to love their neighbor as themselves wants people to approach them as somebody that's canceled. They want to be understood in their complexity rather than dismissed because of a dimension of their complexity. And so how do I practice engaging people in their complexity, uh, telling the truth about the good and the bad? And so it's really about trying to negotiate that and thinking about what, what do you do uh, I'm not sure I use this metaphor in the chapter, but I've used it elsewhere. Uh, if you've bought the album and you like most of the songs, but some of the songs are really bad ones, so what do you, you know? What do you do? You can't just throw out the album. I mean, these days, you know, with, with digital, I guess you can just like ignore it. But but you know, there was a time when you bought the album, you got you still have the whole album. It's all part of a piece. Uh, and I think you have to figure out how to understand what's going on with the bad songs, and to be able to truth be tell the truth about them. And I think if you don't do that, um, I think it's e it's easy to just not do the work that you really expect people to do when you want them to be generous toward you. Um, and, and to me, it's important to continue to work at that practice of being generous, even when you deal with things that are really disappointing. So chapter, that's what I want to do. Uh, and to talk about um, a particular example where where I really had to to negotiate a crisis experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's great. Um, I love that analogy too, with the, with the album and, you know, some folks these days might not be able to fully appreciate that when you can buy songs by the, by the individual song. But I remember them days when you had to get them CDs or them, or them tapes. <laughs> I you know, I have some of those in my office right over there. 
You got them, yeah. <laughs> and I even have cassettes. You got, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. That, the cassettes, <laughs> you know, and and I and I grew up. My my pops had the eight, had the albums too, the record, the vinyl, and the eight tracks. And, eight track. Oh my gosh. And you gotta you gotta take it all. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember one of the first CDs I ever bought in my life was Michael Jackson's History uh, album. All right. It had like the one CD that all his greatest hits. Then the other CD that came with it was a bunch of garbage and like, and it was just terrible, but I had to get it all. Uh, right. But, uh, yeah, but, but, um, but no, that's, I, that's a great example. So if we could go a little deeper into, you know, exactly that, uh, as you said, that crisis moment, um, you know, you, we, you know, we know that one of the main people that you engage in this chapter is somebody that I think a lot of your scholarship has, has drawn from and engaged with, uh, you know, a Dutch theologian, uh, Abraham Kuyper. And so I wonder if you could just give the audience a little bit of background on who this person is, uh, why they're significant. Um, you know, for theology and Christianity. And maybe if you could let us know a little bit about what happened with that that crisis sure, moment. Sure. Uh, before that crisis moment, I can just point out to people that actually, I have his picture <laughs> here, right? Now, and I think that that's an important thing because um, why do I have his picture uh, when you hear this story? Um, so, and that shelf right there, is all that's my Kuiper shelf, right? So Abraham Kuiper, 1837 to 1920. This year is the 100th anniversary of his death. There's actually a lot of stuff being written about that. I've done some interviews with a couple of different uh, Dutch publications about that. Um, he lived he 1837 to 1920. He was prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He's a minister who stepped away from being a pastor when he when he got involved politically. He was an organizer. He was an institution builder. He was what I call uh, in my first book, a walking public theology, really. Mm -hmm. um, and he was somebody whose theology was big picture about certainly caring about the church and about personal piety, but definitely caring about a faith that had to be a public faith. So for me, um, he's one of the first people I read that gave me theological language for public engagement, uh, particularly coming from a sort of a kind of formation that had great dissonance with public engagement, mm. you know, public engagement being maybe that's too worldly. So, mm. uh, so well, but I had an intuition that there was a proper way for Christians to engage the public, that worldliness did not have to mean staying out of public things, whether it's politics, whether it's secular music, you know, whether it's, um, you know, being involved in the structures of how the medical world works, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. that, uh, that 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 it was proper to Christians to participate in that, but I didn't have any theological language or categories for that, and Kuiper gave me those things. Uh, what mm -hmm. he also gave me was the unanticipated gift of critical thinking, uh, because uh, <laughs> I had to deal with, um, you know, the book for which he's most known are a collection of lectures he gave at Princeton in 1898 called The Stone Lectures. Mm -hmm. And um, in the beginning of it, there's language that I really liked about a doctrine called common grace, which is about God's generosity to the creation, a generosity that makes it possible for us to continue to obey that first command in Genesis 1 about um, stewarding the creation. The word stewardship isn't there, but that's basically my argument for what dominion is about in um Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Um, and, uh, and so I like that. Although even in that first chapter, he makes reference to human development corresponding to the sons of Noah. And you can see where that is going. Uh, mm -hmm. So I gave him a mulligan on that one. I was like, okay, late 1890s, a lot of people, you know, were idiots about that. So, you know, <laughs> fine. Keep reading the other stuff. Hey, I like this. I like this. I like this. And then, uh, you know, go back to our music metaphor, about eight pages from the end, I hit one of those deep cuts that I wish I had never uh, encountered. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was when he's contrasting election and evolution. And in, in making this contrast, he says uh, to the effect, he says this, uh, to put it concretely, if you were a plant, you would rather be a rose than a mushroom. If an insect, a butterfly rather than a spider, if a bird and eagle rather than an owl, among the higher vertebrates, lion rather than hyena, 
and being man rich rather than poor, talented rather than dull-minded, and then this was the thing, of the Aryan race than Hottentot or Kaffir. Mm-hmm. That when I read that, it was one of those moments where I wanted to say, please tell me that that was, <laughs> you know, uh, is, it, close my eyes, maybe, you know, there's disappearing ink, it's not there. <laughs> <laughs> Make it go away. <laughs> you open your eyes, it's still there. <laughs> right. So, so, so I have to deal with it, right? Uh, and and I, mean, I remember putting the book down. It's like, mm. what am I going to do? Because I was ready to sign the dotted line and say, no question, this guy will be my dissertation figure. No question, uh, I'm going to read everything this guy's written and you know take cues from him about public engagement. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what critical thinking emerged because I had to deal with a lot of stuff going on inside my head at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing, you know, imagining people saying things to me like, how could you study somebody who would say such things? How could you, you know, just a whole raft mm-hmm. of criticisms as to why would you ever give this guy a time of day? Mm-hmm. The thing was for me, it was like nobody else I was reading was giving me the stuff about public engagement that he was giving me. In terms, mm. of, in terms of what I had, I had read to that point, mm-hmm. so how do so you know I've got this uh, this music I like and mm-hmm. music that is has, has put me into a crisis. Mm. Uh, what do I do with these competing forms of uh, comp- musical composition, shall we say? Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I had to ask this question: Is what he says here and what he said earlier about the Curse of Ham stuff? Is that interwoven with the things I really appreciate? The things that for me had finally given me theological categories for public engagement. Mm. Are they, is there an unbroken relationship between things? Is it, is it inherent in the theology of public life? And my conclusion was the answer is no. Mm. I mean, I'm happy to tell you that, yes, his picture's in my office. Yes, he's a racist. Now he sees a lot more clearly, I like to say, uh, you know, mm-hmm. on the other side. Um, and, and, and honestly, after that, I mean, I learned about other things he said that weren't so great about race and the fact that he was a brilliant person, but a brilliant person who was subject to his gifts rather mm-hmm. than really being able to steward them completely well. Um and so he was an empiric figure. I mean, the, the feet of clay were more obvious than I first imagined. Mm. And so, I mean, over time, I discovered more about that. Um, so, so I had to dis- really discern what, what do you do with all this? And, um, and basically it was you deal with people as complicated figures and you don't treat figures as messianic. And I think sometimes the way that people get exposed to figures, where people are taught to read somebody, somebody says, oh, I love Augustine or I love... I don't know, Irenaeus, or I, I love Aquinas, or I love Edwards. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you, you know, we can just keep calling the role, right? Um, mm-hmm. Then they're presented to us in this sort of one or two dimensional way where they basically have no flaws. Oh, read mm-hmm. this. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's presented to us as a kind of, um, you know, complete endorsement of a figure. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, of course, the thing is, then, is that read the figures with the complete endorsement, stay away from the rest. But the mm. problem is, is that uh, I tell students this all the time. The closer you get to any figure besides Jesus is the closer you get to your day of reckoning, to your crisis, like the one I experienced. Where mm. either because of something that they say, mm-hmm. like what I read, something that they did, and you can, if you, if you read John Howard Yoder, there are things he did that mm-hmm. for people. Uh, mm-hmm. Or just things that they never talk about. Mm-hmm. You love all this stuff. It's like, hey, how come they didn't say anything? Mm-hmm. Stuff? And you're like, how did you miss? How did you miss that? Well, because they aren't Jesus. That's why. And mm-hmm. I should be treating them like Jesus. I mm-hmm. treat them as people that are imperfect and incomplete. And even the most brilliant lights among them are missing something. Mm-hmm. And that there's some flaw that all of them have. So we have to be willing to reckon with that. That doesn't mean that um, you always assign this person, or um, or that you or that you 
in, engage in excuse making so that people so that you can hold on to stuff, right? No, you, you're just being honest about what is there. Just telling mm-hmm. what is there. And if I'm telling the truth about what is there, to me, there's very helpful things for public engagement. Mm-hmm. And, and there are other things that are rather unhelpful. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the picture's here because um, for me, he's really framed a lot of the way that I think about why Christians aren't engaged public life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I don't pull his picture down and do scream therapy at his picture, you know, about things, everything is wrong in the world because of him. Um, you know, but, uh, but you do have to address the, 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 the criticisms of somebody. And, um, it, you know, you, if you're dealing with Kuiper, you have to deal with the fact that some people think he's the father of apartheid. I don't believe that he is. I believe it's Craig Bartholomew says that he is, if you will, somewhat responsible because there are things he wrote, like in a treatise called the crisis in South Africa in the late 1890s, where he's trying to prop up the Boers against the British and talk about what kind of people they are. You know, they may not be quite as uh, polished as the British, but they are people of practical genius. And in their practical genius, they thought they forbid intermarriage between their people and black South African women. And and so there are ways that he talked about those kinds of things, but he never in his own theology said, hey, there's a structure of society uh, that ought to include the separation of, of, of people on the basis of race or ethnicity. Can't get that. So I think it's it's not doing the work of seeing what's completely there. It's easy to say that because there are people who constructed apartheid that used his work, that because they use his work, people think that that makes him the father. When the question you have to ask is, well, how did they use his work? Mm-hmm. Work accurately, or did they modify his legacy mm-hmm. to, in the service of the construction of this system of racial segregation and hierarchy in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, those are the kind of questions you have to ask about anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then you know deal and deal with people in their complexity. So I'm mm-hmm. happy to say that he, to some degree, you know, said things that may have given people reason to think that they could take it further, but you can't get there just from his theology itself, in my view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's powerful. That man, there's so much we could so many uh, I think application points. Uh and um and just just real, real quick uh, before I ask the next more more kind of deeper question, like just wanted to clarify something. Uh, you know, the quote that you quoted in the book as well, a couple of quotes, uh, problematic quotes from Kuiper on 172 in the book. And just to clarify, uh, Aryan race, when he says Aryan race, that's a reference to people he conceives to be of European or some kind of superior descent. And when he said a certain European because of course, as we know about the history of Europe, you know, um, how should we put it? Uh, the Scots, the Irish, the English, the French, and the Spanish didn't all really like each other very much. And the Germans certainly thought they were superior to all of them. So, mm-hmm. so um, and they all, in terms of their pigmentation, we would say that they're white, but um, they, th- they saw themselves different ethnically. So you, so you had ethnic superiority. So he means, you know, generally a certain version of white people. When you said mm-hmm. right, but definitely right. Europeans, right, right, and then and then when he contrasts that, he says that you would that one would want to be of the Aryan race rather than, and then he says the Hottentot or yeah. Kaffir, and yeah. just to clarify, I think these are like specifically kind of Dutch racial slurs for African people. Well, uh, no, they, they're they're just tribes in South Africa, but 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 they're, but they're but that but but yeah, it's it's their categories. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah. These are. This is. It's, it's less about a slur, honestly, than just a description of a people group, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. Because he think I don't. I mean, in the context of that quote, his goal isn't to primarily spend time making a slur. He's just making a comparison of mm-hmm. you know he's saying Aryans are civilized, Africans are uncivilized. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's basically the kind of thing that he's saying, right? And that. These people are more advanced in their culture. These people are not as advanced in their culture. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so the quote, it, I think he's just saying it like, well, I mean, of course, if you had to be this or this or this, this is what you would choose. Um, but, but he never, in, you know, in his work says anything positive about Africans. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, my my historian friends, you know, said that very clearly to me mm-hmm. uh, about that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so unsurprisingly, he, like many Europeans, he's he's he saw a certain version of um, European hegemony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That. Thank you for. Thank you for. Clear. I just wanted to just make sure our readers un- and our hearers understand. Yeah. Yeah. Saying when he says hot and hot and coffer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not that he's thinking uh, that. Although, um, in another quote, I mean, he says elsewhere in, in Calvinism and art, he says, um, you know, beauty does not enrich the whole world. Uh, the beautiful, the common, and the hideous exist side by side. And when he gets to people, he says. Um, the Arab appeals to you by beauty of appearance. The Dutch are common. The hot and tot fills you with loathing. Now, and he's mm-hmm. talking about, you know, what you're, again, he's, he's trying to talk about aesthetics, right? But mm-hmm. the point is, is that he's talking about how a person, when they see some other people group, what your visceral response is going to be to their appearance or their ways of doing things. And, um, and so, I mean, that's that that quote is closer to a slur, I think, mm-hmm. uh, or isn't mm-hmm. a slur, honestly. Um, I mean, now, granted, he's not lifting up the Dutch there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He's saying that oh, we're kind of like average, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but 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 he's also making a value judgment about a particular group of people, and and of course, he never went to Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, he 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 did uh, a tour of the Mediterranean, um, mm-hmm. but like he never went to South Africa or you know the continent per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so okay, so we're you know now you know we understand that you know and and you've given us already I think some good uh, you're from your own story, but also even principles for other folks. And I just think this is so timely. I mean, just real quick to relate to what you're saying. You know, I, I, I one of my kind of biggest things, I love kind of, uh, revealing early African theologians to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people who really are, you know, rightfully hungry to hear that because we mm-hmm. really not heard a lot of that stuff. Right. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I mean, I remember uh, when I was actually when I'm back when I was an undergrad and I took a church history class with a, another prof there at, at Wheaton. And and it, we we didn't hear about, you know, any non-white figures, but it was all white men kind of from or, or figures that weren't white. But you, but no, I told you that they weren't. Well, right. Right. Exactly. Like it was. And, and you know, folks that, uh, you know, even in the early church that only wrote in Greek or Latin, but the kind of the non-Western language speaking folks were always left out. And and so I, I try to, like, reveal those. But then a lot of people will be like, oh, that's great. Vince is going to tell us about these African theologians that were perfect. And I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> you know, like like one of the favorite one of the favorite people I like to tell them about is Shenouda, yeah. Coptic writer, who's the greatest. Yeah, yeah. In Coptic language, and he did all these great things for social justice and monasticism. But he right. also killed a person, <laughs> and and he like in the in the midst of whipping them in the monastery, and then like wrote it off and said, "Well, God must have wanted them dead." <laughs> and it's like this is terrible. You can't escape it. And so it's the same kind of thing. Exactly. Like, exactly. Now, do I just say he he didn't contribute anything when he's the greatest writer? Exactly. 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 Um, it's and, like and, and, right? It's like the John Calvin, mm-hmm. basically, you know, I mean, to hear most people think of it, it's like Calvin was that right there and he was the first person to put the torch at the feet of Servetus when he was being burned, right? Now, he wasn't, but he didn't uh, stop anyone from burning Servetus either, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the only thing is he gave him a chance to recant and to become Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, all right, burn him. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's... So you you have to you have to just deal with the fact that people did these things. That's I mean, right. It, it really is a mistake to just keep this idea that a figure can only be messianic for you to uh, appreciate anything about them. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, and, and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more deeply because I just I also feel like there's just so many uh, just. Uh, you know, so many uh, great application points to what you're saying, because, you know, um, uh, I wonder if you could just maybe, you know, gospel hymenote uh, as a a paradigm is really meant to, again, like be be an alternative or to be 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 a resource for 
for especially black, anybody really, but especially black students of theology uh, and, and ministry leaders. And, and, and again, it's not to necessarily say that, for example, liberation or womanist theology is all bad or that right. is all bad either, or to say that gospel high note is perfect because there's going to be flaws in anything. And so yeah. I wonder, I wonder if you could just speak to like, you know, maybe a little bit more about like, what would you, and you, you, you talk about it in the book. Um, and I love how you even connect, you know, even talk about Dr. King a little bit. Uh, and so I wonder like if you, if you could just speak to, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe as we start to wind down, like if you could uh, maybe like give some uh, encouragements or or um, yeah, just thoughts to our to our listeners sure. and our readers around as a black, especially as a black student, when you're coming into contact with black theology mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and white theology, whether it's evangelical or mainline, when you're when you're coming into contact with these sources, what what advice would you give people? on how to, how to engage those things well. Sure. Uh, the first thing is, is that read with generosity. Mm, mm-hmm. Don't read as if you're reading a Messiah. Um, understand that there are things that people can do that can help you and that there may be things that they do that you'll disagree with. Mm-hmm. So, so I remember I had to learn to grow into appreciation for James Cone. And there's a lot about James Cone to appreciate. But look, there are things I don't agree with about James Cone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also need to understand, you, if you know James Cone's story, uh, it, it, his trajectory makes a certain kind of, you know, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that means that I need to sign off on everything he ever read, or even most of what he read. Mm-hmm. But his story is really instructive. Mm-hmm. And things he observes are important things to observe. And I can observe those things without having to have, in my view, uh, as you know, I, as having, a, in my view, a higher view of scripture than he did, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and not t- holding all the positions he took on certain issues. Um, but, but I can say all that and say, look, you can't not appreciate this guy. So, so mm-hmm. appreciation doesn't have to be wholesale affirmation. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when people finally get to read somebody that's, you know, we're reading somebody for my people. It's like, what I would say is, you know, don't put the weight of this person saving everything for you mm-hmm. because you're dealing with a human being. Mm-hmm. Missed something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. nobody is going to tell you everything or deliver everything for you. Okay. You're asking that person to be Jesus. So mm-hmm. no figure should be Jesus, mm-hmm. but you can learn a lot from people without them having to be Jesus. So mm-hmm. read them with generosity and it's okay to disagree with them. Mm-hmm. But when, even in your disagreements, ask questions like what was their training? What were the questions that they were addressing? Not how are they answering my questions? I mean, it's okay to get to the point about how they're answering my questions. But first I need to ask what questions were they addressing? Mm-hmm. And then what questions they were addressing and how did they go about answering it? What resources did they have to pursue that? How did their education enable them to do that? How did their context orient them towards a certain way of going about addressing those questions? All that stuff I have to ask. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in doing that, it helps us to engage those people as complex figures. Mm-hmm. So, that I, so that I can say, I like a lot about what you're saying, but there's a lot of this other stuff. I'm like, no, actually, I think some of what you're saying is with the birds. That's okay to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also important to say, you know, think about what your own convictions are. My convictions don't about the gospel you know, don't need to change because there are people who believe the same gospel who reveal areas of growth and sanctification that they don't even know that they need. <laughs> uh, and and because I, I, I'm aware that they really need to be more sanctified about certain things or by even being able to recognize certain things, that's not reason for me to say that the problem is with the gospel per se or denomination per se, 
I mean, there may be some things to address there, but I need to ask first, okay, look, what actually are my particular convictions about this thing, whatever it is? And then if somebody's failing to, to live up to that, then the problem is that they're failing to live up to it, not the problem with the gospel itself. Mm -hmm. To be able to discern that difference. And sometimes I think what happens is, and it, it's, it's, it's a hazard of, of, of leadership, honestly, is that if a person is a prominent representative of a tradition and then they fail to do something or they do things that are bad of, of all kinds, it can be morally, it can be in terms of ideas, it can be in terms of, you know, obviously race, economics, all kinds of stuff. I, I think, okay, the whole thing needs to be thrown out. But really, what we need to do in that moment is to ask, wow, they're missing something. And then ask, what, are, what is the cautionary tale that could happen with me? Hmm. How do I avoid the cautionary tale with me? Mm -hmm. Then discern, is the problem with their beliefs and where their beliefs took them? Or is it that they didn't go where their beliefs should have taken them? Hmm. Because I think a lot of times people just assume that because people went a certain way that their beliefs took them there. I'm like, no, actually, I think the problem is, and this is part of what I'm, I'm arguing in this new book, is that uh, evangelical theology doesn't display the good news as much as it should. It gives you a um, diminished version of the good news in articulation and practice. Hmm. But, but that doesn't mean get rid of evangelical theology. No, it means put the Bible in front of the face of evangelical theology and say, do you really believe this entire book? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, you can say it to a tradition that is supposedly put in the Bible central. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so we have to be willing to do that. And same thing if somebody, let's say somebody goes through their phase of being frustrated with the black church because they don't think it's intellectual enough, or they don't think that, uh, or they think it's too emotional, uh, et cetera. What I would say is, do you know why the people are being emotional? Mm. And, and I say this to somebody who had to learn this. Because mm -hmm. I, was like, I didn't understand what some of these older people were doing. It's like, why are they always going, Lord, Lord, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I, I said that. But what, what, what are they doing? <laughs> why they say that during this church service, right? Um, well, I understand now. Mm. And the point is, is that there are people who don't have probably half the education I have, right? They don't have any of these degrees or whatever, but they deeply love Jesus. They've mm -hmm. got the core of the faith and they are very passionate about their faith. And I, sure, I might want them to have more content to what they, they believe or to build out more of what they believe, but that's not a reason we have disdain for them because they don't know as much as I know. Mm -hmm. I'd be asking why, you know, there's still something going on here about why these people hold on, why these people persevere, why these people face all kinds of horror in the world, yet they don't give up Jesus. In fact, you know, here's something really interesting. I heard James Cohn say at the Society of Christian Ethics, I think it was in 2009, he said the entire reason for his project was trying to understand the Jesus his, who his parents believed, because he could not understand why these people seem to believe the same Jesus those white people believe, the white people who were mistreating them, but they were mm. on to that Jesus. And the point is, was that he was discovering, okay, they were on to something. What were they on to? Mm. Mm -hmm. What's going on with this Jesus that he's so worth holding on to that even people who seem to say the same thing about them, but are terrible people, you are able to distinguish between the Jesus they confess and their failures in practice. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to be able to do that. And, and please understand, that can be really hard when you're working through your own stuff, when you've got your own pains, your own traumas, your own disappointments. All that's important. Those are important things to work through. But mm -hmm. in working through them, we need to work through them with discernment. And honestly, we need others to help us working through them mm -hmm. uh, so that we're able to navigate the complexity. Because, again, the problem is that Let's say somebody grew up in an evangelical setting, whatever their race is, they get disenchanted and they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. What they need to understand is that, trust me, the crazy people are over there, too. Mm -hmm. The disappointed people are over there, too. So mm -hmm. it's not whether you have crazy people, whether mm -hmm. you have disappointing people, whether you have bad actors, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. The question is, um, how do you negotiate the relationship between people's 
um, failure to live up to their faith and that faith itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing for us to be uh, always thinking about because it's just so easy to just take the easy route and just cancel it. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that we have to ask ourselves, do I want to be canceled because of my imperfections? Mm -hmm. Because I think all of us have probably some imperfections of some kind. Mm -hmm. And how do we want people to treat us with our imperfections? What kind of mercy do we want? What kind of generosity do we want towards us? How much mm -hmm. of an explainer do we want to be able to give to people rather than having somebody say, you get no explainer, you're out. Mm. My point is that we need to be the ones who exercise that generosity toward others. I mean, this is a version of loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Man, thank you so much, Dr. Bako. This is powerful. This is this is this is great. This is good stuff. And so, again, if anybody uh, you know has not had the chance to do it, definitely get Gospel High Minote, Consultology yes. and Critical Reflection on African and Diasporic Christianity. And... And, and yeah, and uh, you should know if you if you didn't participate in it, that there was a great Hymenote conference earlier. I'm telling you, folks, if you were not part of it, Vincent did not pay me to do this. Uh, you have no idea the quality of presentations that you missed. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so uh, you know there'll be future ones. You definitely want to check it out. Uh, it was absolutely um, so needed, so spectacular, and a great uh, opportunity to to dive into hymenote conversation. Yes, thank you, Dr. Baco. That's right. That and 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 you know, definitely, we're we're going to be that. This was the inaugural one, uh, and and again, this is the you know, it's really the only public open academic black hymenote theology or theology conference, you know, uh, around. And so that's really focused on the academy. And so uh, definitely uh, come around. It's going to be October uh, 21 is going to be the next one. And also there's a journal that's going to be coming out. Uh, the proceedings of that, if you didn't, if you weren't at the annual meeting, the proceedings are going to be published in a journal with the same publisher. Just a shout out to shout out to UMI. Uh, they That's who published Gospel Hymenote book. They're going to be publishing the the uh, Hymeno Journal, and and these things will be available. And the idea is to do more of, of what um, Dr. Baco went before me. He was my professor, and what we're trying to do is to create more resources for Black scholars who are coming into the academy, uh, and that really reflect the fullness of the Black Church, that holistic Hymenote. Um, and so that's really what we're trying to do is craft out paradigms. And again, like you know, uh, you know, this idea of being gospelist means that it means to grab firmly to the high view of scripture uh, that Dr. Baker was talking about and to the liberation and justice that many times in evangelicalism has been has been lacking. And so that's really what the idea of it is, both in the book and the journal and in the annual meeting. And you can you can be a part of that society as well. It's on the website, uh, uh, www.meacham.org. That's M-E-A-C-H-U-M.org. You can join and be a part. Um, but uh, but again, it's not perfect. <laughs> and so, again, you know, we we uh, we we want to be taking these things that Dr. Baco, these gems that Dr. Baco has given us uh, and really be engaging all of these paradigms and all of these concepts uh, critically. And again, trusting only in Jesus. And so um, and so, again, uh, definitely get the book so you can go deeper into Dr. Baco's story, because there's so much in here that we didn't have time to get at in this interview. Uh, even just in his chapter, let alone all the others. And we will have other interviews uh, here on the Jew 3 Project as well from some of the other authors in this book. But at this time, I just want to um, I just want to give God glory and thank you so much for Dr. Baco for the journey, for the mighty long way that he's brought Dr. Baco <laughs> from uh, and to, to be able to teach all of us. And uh, Dr. Baker, I wonder if you could just maybe uh, give any parting words. Uh, we know you have your book that's out with Brill. Definitely get that as well. Um, but I wonder just any parting words you might have about uh, just how the audience might be able to connect with you, uh, things that are coming up for you. Uh, yeah. Uh, just, yeah, any, any, any things like that as we sure. go. Uh, check out uh, Christianity Today. I was sort of like the, the person who was curating this race set before us, set of articles. Um, and Christianity Today, uh, so I've done some writing for them. Um, and uh, over at my website, vincentbaycoat.com, uh, I have a speaking calendar over there. I'm very happy to 
virtually or otherwise uh, come and speak with people. Uh, I'm also moving into the coaching space a little bit. So I'm happy to talk with church leaders about how their faith builds out to building bridges to the public life. To me, it's a very important thing to do. It's a, it's, it's a hymenote thing, right? I mean, the holistic faith. So I'm trying to um, expand that dimension of what I'm doing as well. I've done some of that uh, already last summer. started out really well, I think. Um, and um, and uh, I'm and pray for me as I try to finally finish an eschatology and ethics book that should have been done a couple of years ago. So that's my prayer request to everyone who watches. <laughs> oh, amen, amen. Well, uh, we would definitely be praying with you on that. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Baco, for being here. Thank you for this chapter and all of your scholarship. And thank all of you uh, for tuning in to another podcast of the Jew 3 Project. Again, we are here to help you know what you believe and why and to equip the body of Christ. And so uh, we are thankful to be here on today. God bless you all. And we will be back uh, with another interview for Gospel Hymenote uh, soon. Um, but uh, for now, uh, we want to say God bless you. And we will see you later. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.